Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. My name's Sarah. Thank you to all of our regular listeners. If you would like to support the show, head over to our website, boft.org slash podcast to pick up one of our podcast t-shirts. This week, we are welcoming back our special guest and co-worker, David Stumpfel, who you might remember from the James K. Polk episode to talk about a monumental figure in Tennessee history, Andrew Jackson. So where's the best place to start with Andrew Jackson? Well, I think just to get this out there, uh, Andrew Jackson is perhaps the most controversial and contradictory president ever. He is going to be the leader of one of the most incredibly complicated periods of American history, or at least the policies themselves are going to be complicated. And so I'm just going to say objectivity is most likely going to be impossible here. So most potentially most controversial president ever. Very likely, yes. Okay. Well, we're excited to hear about all these controversies. All right. Andrew Jackson was born March 15th. 1767 in uh, the Waxhaws region of the Carolinas. If you don't already know where this is, that is going to be between Charlotte, North Carolina, and just directly south going into South Carolina. In what year? Uh, 1767. Okay, so that's way out there back then. Absolutely. And the thing is, even Jackson's birth is a point of contention. We don't actually have a solid idea of exactly which state he was born in. Jackson himself said he was going to be born in South Carolina, but a lot of historical records say he was born at an uncle's farm in North Carolina. So even here, even with the most basic beginning stuff with Andrew Jackson, there's already controversy and contradiction. But he's kind of, he's kind of born in the West. That is a good way to put it. Uh, Andrew Jackson, I think, is going to be as much of a Westerner as he is a Southerner at this point. Uh, especially since he will be only 21 by the time he made it to Tennessee. Now, that being said, I think that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, just because Andrew Jackson had already gone through a lot in his early years. As a boy, he had uh, already fought in one war. He was actually going to be a soldier in uh, the American Revolution, or at the very least, he was in a militia, if not necessarily a practical soldier. When he was how old? 13 years old. Wow. Yeah. yeah. He's not boring. <laughs> He's not boring at all. Now, uh, he had already lost one brother to the war. He would soon lose his other brother while staying in a prison camp. Uh, his mother would actually uh, be able to negotiate for his release just because he had come down with smallpox. But uh, unfortunately, his mother then would also die before he's even 15. Of and smallpox? Of cholera, actually. Okay. And where's his father through that? His father actually died three weeks before Andrew was born. So his father dies right before he's born. Mm-hmm. His his brothers die, two of them. Mm-hmm. And then his mother died. By the time he is 15, he is an orphan. Okay. And a veteran. <laughs> and a veteran, exactly, yeah. Uh, now, he was going to be kind of bouncing around, uh, kind of staying with relatives and neighbors in that time after that. Uh, he did get a small inheritance from his grandfather. Uh, and actually, he's going to spend a lot of that money on getting an education. And now, he is going to be a lawyer. He is going to be a representative in the U.S. Uh, Congress for Tennessee. He was a senator for Tennessee. He was the uh, Superior Court Judge of Tennessee. 
this is an educated man. And this is something I always like to go over with Jackson, just because there's a bit of a misconception around him that he's just this hard partying, drinker, gambler. Barbarian. Barbarian. He's killed men in duels. And all of that is true. <laughs> I don't want to sugarcoat it, but at the same point, this is a man with very particular skills. He is very... He's the Liam Neeson. He <laughs> is a little bit. Uh, of well, the law world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I'll say is that Andrew Jackson, uh, as much as he has this identity as a brawler, this is an identity he crafted for himself. He wants you to think that about him. He is very deliberate in what he's doing. He is always going to also have that one extra step. So a great example. If you were going to be in a tavern and Andrew Jackson's standing right there and you decide to make the grave mistake of insulting him or his future wife, uh... He would not just punch you in the face. He would stop, think, can I win this fight? Of course I can, I'm, I'm Andrew Jackson, and then he punches you in the face. <laughs> he was not necessarily the heaviest man, but he was six foot one in an area where most people were maybe five eight. So he is a tall man, he's a strong guy when he's younger, and he can really deal him out, let's put it that way. <laughs> when it comes to Jackson, I think more so than being educated, he wanted to be a leader. I think it's also important we note, I don't know how much of the education he really retained. Uh, one of the more famous quotes of Jackson is that any man who cannot think of multiple ways to spell a word is not creative enough. So, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, so he... That's a good excuse for not doing so. I should <laughs> exactly, use that more often. Exactly. So he's really going to be uh, kind of tug-in-cheek with his education, but he was educated. Uh, Where did he go to school? He didn't really go to college. He was not really a university man. But at that time, you could study to be a lawyer just by yourself. You didn't necessarily have to go to a law school. Right. Uh, I mean, Abraham Lincoln was very similarly trained. Well, it was more about just being able to find the texts to read and to teach yourself those. Exactly. And usually the only place you get those would be at a school or somebody who was already an established lawyer. Yeah. So that's, again, that's what he was really using his inheritance for. Purchasing books trying to find some tutors who could teach him while he's working in certain areas. Now, because this also comes up all the time, dueling. Andrew Jackson is pretty notorious when it comes to duels. He either fought or participated in somewhere between five or over a hundred duels. That's controversial as far as numbers go. Absolutely, yeah. And a bit of a discrepancy there. Yeah. That is, really, no matter how you slice it, that's too many duels. Right. Um, <laughs> now, of course... The most famous of these duels was going to be against a man named Charles Dickinson. Uh, not the author, but a man with a similar name. Uh, now, of course... His son. Yeah. yeah now, He's so, not his son, just to clarify. Charles Dickinson's son. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Now, uh, the argument itself was over a uh, horse bet. According to Dickinson, Jackson had squelched on the bet. He wasn't going to pay him. Uh, and then, of course, not just was this an insult to Jackson, but... Then Dickinson took it a step further, and he insulted his wife. Ooh. Uh, so, now, Andrew Jackson did not duel Dickinson in the state of Tennessee because it was illegal to duel in Tennessee. So, actually, most of these duels are happening in Kentucky. But he did let Dickinson shoot first. He took the bullet, and then slowly Andrew Jackson leveled his gun out, took his sweet time, and shot Charles Dickinson dead.
This again gives an idea of what kind of person Andrew Jackson is. Very methodical, very intentional. So he lets himself take a bullet just so he can kill the other guy. Exactly. Now, that's also another good mis- It's better than just killing the other guy. Yeah. Well, what I'll say is uh, what's uh, one of the more common misconceptions about dueling is that every time you go, you try to kill the other guy. Most duels, honestly, were over just because you showed up. It was a matter of achieving your honor to maintain your honor. So actually, that number of 100 duels, Jackson probably didn't kill 100 people. But he just showed up to 100 duels to prove that he is going to kill someone if you don't walk away now. Now, you may have noticed already, I've brought uh, Andrew Jackson's wife up a couple Mm -hmm. times. Uh, It's very common for people to insult Jackson. It's also just as common for people to insult his wife. Who is his wife? Now, he was married to a woman named Rachel Donaldson. She came from a moderately successful Kentucky family, uh, so she she was not by any means just any girl. They met, they fell in very passionate love, and then they were married in 1791. But as they were on a supposed, I guess you could call it a honeymoon uh, down in Natchez, Mississippi, they would then return home to Nashville to find out that technically Rachel just committed bigamy. Now, for anyone that doesn't already know, bigamy is where you're married to two people at the same time, which, of course, is illegal. Her first husband was a man named Louis Robards, who, by all accounts, seems to have, if not physically abused her, really just treated her terribly. So this is why she had fled back to her family. She had assumed Robards had already filed for divorce because she wasn't coming back. And it's true that he had initiated court proceedings, but they weren't finalized. So when Rachel marries Andrew... It's illegal. Well, and so you said this was in Tennessee in the early 1790s? Yes, 1791. Way out in the middle of nowhere back then. Mm -hmm. And that's a great point. Uh, Part of the reason why you're seeing so much of this kind of lawlessness is because, well, Tennessee is a wilderness. It is going to be a place where there are just chances of death every single way you turn. Uh, It is the Wild West. Now, ultimately, what we end up seeing is that today... The reason bigamy is not really a problem is because we have computers and we can send law papers across the entire world in a matter of seconds. Back then, you also needed an excuse to get uh, divorced. You couldn't just do it. You had to kind of give one party blame. And so now that she's a bigamist, Rachel took the blame for the divorce. And so on paper, the divorce is her fault. Exactly. Now, back at that time, you might as well have called Rachel a prostitute. That was the accusation, that she was promiscuous, that she was throwing herself at these men. Now, of course, that's not true in the least bit. From what we can all tell, Rachel very truly did love Andrew Jackson. It's just that her first husband kind of messed everything up for her. And so she, so it seems like she just trusted that the paperwork was finalized and it wasn't. And then exactly, and I, it, she was an accidental bigamist at best. Yeah, I, I think if I remember correctly, uh, the same thing just happened to Winona Ryder not too long ago. Actually, oh, what? I know, right? You would think, but eh, that's the modern society, I suppose. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. <laughs> Good pun there. Thanks. <laughs> Together with Rachel, uh, Andrew never actually had any children. It's not really clear if they couldn't have children or they just chose not to but they did adopt numerous children throughout their lives so there are going to be children so much but they're not conventionally his if that makes sense um they're not biological they're not biological 
Now, of course, he loved them like they were his own children, uh, but really, there's going to be three of his kids that are going to be the most notable. One was a uh, nephew of Rachel's name, whom they would name Andrew Jr. He is actually the only one of their children who would live longer than Andrew would. He passed away in 1865. Hmm. Uh, How old was Andrew Jr. when they adopted him? He was a newborn. Oh, okay. Yeah. And actually, he was one of a tw- he was actually a twin. His uh, brother was going to be taken in by other parts of the family. Okay. Um, but supposedly, Andrew Jr. saw Rachel and Andrew as his parents. He didn't really care who his other parents were. Interesting. Uh, the other children they ended up having would have been Hutchins, who was also an adopted child, uh, who unfortunately would have p- passed away by uh, 1841. And the other child, who's probably the most no, well-known of the Jackson children uh, is going to actually be a young Native American boy who Jackson had adopted from the battlefield. His name was Lincoya. Adopted from the battlefield? Yes. Can you explain that? Andrew Jackson was walking a battlefield and happened to see this young infant child crying next to his dead mother. That was Lincoya. He sent Lincoya back up to uh, his home at the Hermitage to stay with Rachel while he was still fighting the war and Again, took him in, really, and tried to raise him as best he could. Did they name him Lincoya, or is that his... I believe that was the name okay. that the Jacksons gave this child. Okay. Uh, supposed to give him some semblance of his actual culture. So he seems to be... Uh, Andrew seems to be a, like a guy of contradictions. That's absolutely going to be true. In fact, that would be the word I would probably use to describe Andrew Jackson the most. Completely contradictory. Uh, he just is... Not going to have the most consistent views, I don't think. Or at the very least, he's just more complicated than people want to give him credit for. So you mentioned his home, the Hermitage. So what's the story behind that? Yeah, so he purchased the Hermitage back in 1804. Uh, It's about a thousand acres of land and was a self-sustaining plantation. Not too dissimilar from Carnton, honestly, except there's more of a focus on cotton there. Now, we also know that in addition to Andrew's children and his wife, he's going to end up owning 150 people. Wow. Now, these enslaved people are absolutely going to be the reason for Jackson's wealth. This is coming from the Hermitage's own records. Without his slaves, he would not be a wealthy man. Andrew Jackson is going to be kind of part of this generation of people who is not necessarily going to be okay with slavery, but he's kind of differential to it. He's not really going to be speaking out against slavery. Kind of like the founding fathers, he's going to end up being someone who really believed that slavery might just end on its own. The further we expand out west, the more likely it will just start to fade away. But he also didn't seem to care to do anything to speed down its demise, or speed up its demise. Exactly. So we end up seeing throughout Jackson's life, many major events will kind of change the game a little bit. Uh, just to kind of list them off, the Missouri Compromise is one. Uh, Nat Turner's Rebellion happens during his presidency. Uh, the rise of the abolitionist movement and uh, the annexation of Texas and this idea of manifest destiny really takes hold throughout Jackson's life. Yet he doesn't do much to control this. So the country is growing, and as it's growing, it's wrestling with the idea of, of slavery. Mm-hmm. And he's just kind of sitting back and watching it happen. In Jackson's opinion, he felt that the abolitionist movement, as well as the southern extremists, what we would see as the secessionist movement coming with uh, the Civil War, 
he saw both of them as agitators trying to take this issue of slavery and use it for their own political gains. So he's more of like, let's maintain the status quo kind of guy. Exactly, exactly. Because that's what this idea was. Even going back to, say, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, the idea is slavery will just kind of run its course. And I think that was Jackson's mindset. But let the record show that Andrew Jackson was the first American president who did not openly condemn slavery to the public. Interesting. Interesting, okay. No matter what you want to say about any other president, they all at some point did say in their time, slavery is an evil and it should be gotten rid of. The first six did. The first and six. And he was the first who didn't. Exactly. He is coming about an era, too, when we're seeing the minds of slavery shift from necessary evil to necessary good. Mm-hmm. Or positive good. Yeah, positive good. Yep. Now... That is going to be something else I I did kind of come across. It's actually funny that you say that. While studying for this podcast, uh, there actually has been quite a lot of debate online as to whether Andrew Jackson was going to be treating his slaves humanely, whether or not he's going to be, quote unquote, a good slave owner. And for just anyone who's listening out there, if you're having that argument, that's kind of missing the point. Right. The fact of the matter is Andrew Jackson owned 150 people. And regardless of how he treated these people, many of them did attempt to run away. These people knew what freedom was, and they wanted it, and they couldn't have it as long as Jackson was alive. Did he try to free his slaves when he was, like, in his will or anything like that? No, he did not. Okay. Uh, Many of his slaves continued to live at the Hermitage throughout the Civil War. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, what what happens next in his life? So... We probably should start talking about the military campaigns, because that's what most people tend to think of as Jackson. If not a president, then he's a general. Right. Now, uh, it's going to be very important that we note that when Andrew Jackson first became a military leader, he was not trusted by the United States government. Interesting. That's because uh, he had actually been involved in the Aaron Burr conspiracy only a few years earlier. Interesting guy for him to... Ties horse, too. Can you explain that conspiracy for our listeners? Aaron Burr, the disgraced vice president of the United States, who had at this point already already dueled with Alexander Hamilton. And killed. And killed him, yes. Began to move across the United States, trying to collect farmers, military men, settlers to come with him and settle this region of what is basically uh, 40,000 acres of what is today Texas and parts of Oklahoma. Now... He had been promised this land by the Spanish government if they were just going to settle it. But what Burr seemed to be planning was that he would seize the land with military force and then perhaps keep going. Now, of course, potentially starting a war with a foreign nation is called treason. And uh, Aaron Burr was going to be one of the first people in the country tried for treason. Really, the fact that this is the first thing that Andrew Jackson was a part of as a military leader... It's not looking good for him in the very early stages of his <laughs> life. What um, year did this happen? This is going to be happening in uh, really in between 1805 to 1807. Okay. This is why, though, when the War of 1812 began, even though Andrew Jackson was very, shall we say, gung-ho, he's volunteering 2,500 men that he can lead to battle right then and there, President James Madison turns him down. He just doesn't trust Jackson. Because of the Aaron Burthing. Exactly. Ultimately, Jackson's just sitting on the bench waiting for something to do. 
and then he gets his opportunity. As many people who don't know about the War of 1812 there are, there are just as many people who don't know that there's a concurrent war that happens right at the same time. This is going to be the Creek War, which is going to be happening in what is today mostly Alabama and Georgia. This is where Andrew Jackson finally gets to act. He is going to be sent down trying to quickly win this fight, get back, and hopefully he can now come back and really win some bigger battles against the British. The Creek War was what? The Creek War uh, is actually going to be something that was going to be more of a civil war, really, between many different factions of the Creek tribe. But what we're going to end up seeing is that Americans were killed, a lot of freed slaves were joining the Creeks, and so people were getting very panicky about what this could mean for the whole country, if it could spill over into other uh, battles, if the British might try to interfere with it. Ultimately, Andrew Jackson ends up conquering the entire region. He ends up taking land from both the Creek enemies and our Creek allies during this time. Wow. So he doesn't really seem to care who he's fighting. He's just yeah. fighting everybody. Exactly. And again, this is where he found Lincoya. Luckily, for Jackson's sake at least, he is going to have some backing now to come back and actually fight in the actual War of 1812. Now, most notably, he's going to kick out the British at uh, Pensacola, Florida. But probably the one everyone knows about is the big battle at New Orleans. The Battle of New Orleans is going to be kind of a big example of Jackson's military genius, if you want to call it that, just because he was very poorly supplied, he did not have nearly enough men, and he was up against a great force, a much greater force, with the British uh, Armada. What we can say is that ultimately he had 5,700 people fighting 8,000 British soldiers. Now, his 5,700 sounds like a lot, but keep in mind, he's enlisting just anyone he can find in the area of New Orleans. So not trained soldiers. Not trained soldiers. Some of these guys are just slaves that he's arming. Interesting. And in fact, probably the most infamous people that he armed were going to be pirates led by uh, the Frenchman Jean Lafitte. Okay. okay. Yeah, Pirates. Pirates. (laughs) Not boring again. Not boring. (laughs) Now, uh, the ultimate response to the Battle of New Orleans is that Jackson has this kind of overwhelming victory. 31% 31% of that British force was destroyed here. Wow. And he left less than 1% of his own men. That is impressive. It's a pretty remarkable military victory. It is. I think, Brad, I think you may have joked around with me a little bit earlier here about how uh, you might expect that Andrew Jackson would just go home after this war now and maybe retire at the Hermitage. So he's like 48 at this point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... He's middle-aged. He's not going to stop, though. Right after this, he goes into another war. Now, this is going to be because of what happened in the Creek War. Uh, What's his rank at this point? He is a general. He's a general. He is a general. So, Andrew Jackson, after New Orleans, is going to go into a completely new war. Ultimately, what we saw is after fighting the creek and seizing all of the land of what is today most of Alabama and southern Georgia, he displaced all these creek Indians. Now, these people have to go somewhere, and many of them ran to Florida. 
Now, this ends up becoming a new instance where the British are trying to influence an uprising with the Seminole who lived in that state. So now Andrew Jackson is basically going to deem this a military threat to the United States. And without any orders from the president, he will just march men down there and start to kick butt and take names. Wow. And what was the what was the public's view of this? Well, uh, the people seemed to be behind him, but the government really, again, didn't seem to like this. Actually, understandably, yeah, most of the people in Congress were definitely seeing this as a potential Napoleon trying to gain favor with the populace so that he could crown himself emperor one day. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it makes sense. The country's only 40 yeah. years old. Just so. about. Uh, now, ironically, uh, his best support for this action actually came from the Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams. Hmm. Now, the reason Qu- uh, Adams liked this is because as much as Jackson's actions uh, were seen as brutal, he was making it easier to remove British influence from the continent. And he was giving Adams leverage to negotiate for the possession of Florida to change to the Americans as opposed to the British and the Spanish. Okay. So it was making Adams' job much easier, and we could gain a bunch of land by just simply saying, he did it by himself. We didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, He's a a loose cannon, that Jackson. Exactly. Uh, Can't stop him. He's a cop with an attitude you just can't stop. Uh, Now, (laughs) So he kind of almost took the bullet. On that one. A little bit. And he gained. Is that a pun? Yes. <laughs> nice. He did literally take a bullet before. <laughs> and he did gain a large amount of support from the population. And so it's at that point that it seems like Jackson may have really started to take his career in politics more seriously. Uh, we know that he is going to be the military governor of Florida for only about 11 weeks. Uh, and then he's going to be elected as senator of Tennessee for a second time. And it's one of the worst kept secrets that this was most likely just going to be done because people wanted to build up Jackson's resume. Because, again, by this point, even though he had served in political roles, almost all these jobs, except for his time as Superior Court judge, were only a year or less. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, again, he's really more of a general than a politician at this point. So are people already talking about him as maybe being president one day? Yes. And uh, what we're going to start seeing – and. This happens kind of over the course of this election and the next one, but you're going to see that more white men now have the right to vote. The uh, property requirements that had been put in uh, back by our founders were now removed. So you've got millions of people now who could vote for the first time ever. Now, it's not going to be an overnight change again. This is happening state by state, but it is going to be part of the reason why Andrew Jackson suddenly has a chance to win. He doesn't need the political establishment. He just needs the people. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And he has them. He does. The election of 1824 is between five people. Andrew Jackson, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, and at the time, it should be noted, the Secretary of State is basically the president's chosen successor. The last three presidents at this point had all been Secretary of State. Okay. So that is the precedent. Especially when there's only been five presidents. Exactly. Also, we had John C. Calhoun, who was the Secretary of War. Uh, We had William Crawford, the Secretary of the Treasury, and Henry Clay, who was at the time the Speaker of the House. So, heavy hitters. These are all pretty big heavy hitters, yeah. As this is going to be the era of good feelings, technically, all these people are in the same party. So... 
they're trying to run against each other so that the Electoral College can basically pick that at the end. Ultimately, John C. Calhoun's the first one out. He just doesn't have the support. Now, when the actual popular vote happens, Andrew Jackson is the overwhelming victor. But no one had the required majority in the Electoral College. There were 261 possible votes. You needed 131. And Andrew Jackson didn't come close to that. According to the Constitution, you have to go to the House of Representatives with the top three vote-getters, and they will decide who wins there. Now, that means that Henry Clay, who came in fourth place, is now out of the running. But because he's the Speaker of the House, he can influence who actually wins. Now, he will choose John Quincy Adams. And then only a couple weeks later, John Quincy Adams named Henry Clay his Secretary of State, or in other words, his chosen successor. <laughs> Seems a, a little shady there. And that's exactly what Jackson thought. He, in fact, calls it a corrupt bargain, and that is going to be the name that really sticks. Now, there's a little bit that we should kind of analyze there, because it's probably not really that corrupt. It just looks corrupt. And the reason I say that is because who was Henry Clay really going to choose? He was the antithesis to Andrew Jackson. So he wasn't really popular with that. The other guy, William Crawford, had a stroke. So he really couldn't serve as president. And because he'd worked with Adams before, well, maybe Henry Clay just saw it as the guy I might be able to work with. And Quincy and Adams kind of had a... By default, then, too. <laughs> and Quincy Adams had a pretty reputable political career mm-hmm. and was point. the son of a founding mm-hmm. father. Exactly right. Now, of course, on the other side of things, why does John Adams choose Henry Clay? Well, frankly, because... Henry Clay would have been the best choice for Secretary of State at the time. Or, really, the best choice was John Quincy Adams himself. In fact, even today, he's regarded as possibly the greatest Secretary of State we've ever had. But he can't choose himself, so he picked Clay. But it doesn't really matter to Jackson. He's going to scream bloody murder. And basically, as soon as the election's over, the next election's already beginning. 1828, start it right now. Ultimately, uh, what we're going to see Jackson doing over the next four years is organizing with his vice presidential nominees. Uh, These guys are going to be John C. Calhoun, who is the sitting vice president, and then the next guy who's vice president, who is Martin Van Buren. They're going to end up forming what we today know as the Democratic Party. Interesting. Uh, Now, this is coupled with that expansion of people able to vote now who weren't able to before. This will actually be uh, one of the highest turnouts ever uh, at that point. Something like 57.6% of the population would actually turn out for this. Now again, this is only counting the white men and the population, but uh, at the time, this was going to be astonishing to people. And now this is also going to be one of the dirtiest campaigns in American history. Again, I mentioned 1824 is controversial. This is also going to be just as controversial, simply because both sides start to lob rumors at each other. They start to try to defame the other side. Now, keep in mind, Jackson and Adams, they aren't the ones actually doing it. They're not really supposed to. It's not really going to look good if you're out there campaigning. It would look almost beneath you if you want the job. But their supporters are definitely not holding back. And what we're going to see is that Andrew Jackson is going to be accused of being a murderer, a criminal, a duelist. He's going to ha- see that his wife is called, uh, well, for all intents and purposes, a whore. And then John Quincy Adams is accused of being just one of the most corrupt people in office ever. 
He's going to be also charged with being a pimp for the Tsar of Russia. <laughs> wow, that's a pretty specific accusation. It is, and well, <laughs> here's the thing. Whereas most of the accusations of Jackson are rooted in some kind of truth, no matter how unfair the spin is, most of the John Quincy Adams uh, accusations are actually going to be baseless. They're almost complete lies. We do know, though, that Andrew Jackson will become the president in 1828. But this election is going to be just so detrimental to Rachel Jackson. She had already been ill for many years at this point, but really, Andrew Jackson personally blames the smear campaign against her for taking her life. She died a few weeks before he was inaugurated. we're going to stop part one of our two-part series on Andrew Jackson. Make sure to come back in two weeks to listen to part two. Thanks again to David for appearing on the podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app if you'd like to send other people our way. Also, please, please, please reach out to us by sending us an email. If you have a suggestion or a comment on our show, it's podcast at boft, B-O-F-T dot org. Or you can follow us on Instagram at 10 in 20 podcasts. You can also sign up for our e-newsletter at boft.org slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks.